There is an unseen hand to me that leads Welcome to the Unseen Hand Podcast, featuring the pulpit ministry of missionary evangelist Ronnie Brown. Listen in as Brother Ronnie shares the truth of the Bible and how God's unseen hand can lead and guide your life with each and every verse. This hand still leads me as I go. If you have your Bibles, I want you to take them to the Old Testament book of Jonah. Jonah chapter number 3. We are continuing on Sunday morning to explore the depths of God's love. The depths of God's love. And we've been doing it under, under the theme of, of, the, of how deep is the Father's love. And I want us to continue uh, that in Jonah 3 and verse number 5. We'll read down through verse number 9. Let's all stand out of honor and reverence to God's word. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 5 through 9. I want to ask you to do something for me this morning. If you need to take a drink of water, you need to go to the bathroom, you need to do anything like that, I want you to do that in the first few minutes of my message. And Please remain where you are through the entire message, all right? I appreciate that. Jonah chapter number 3, look at verse number 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God. <laughs> that is a miracle. A miracle. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and, upon, and put on sackcloth of the greatest of them to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh who rose from his throne and he laid his robe from him and covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and, of his, and his nobles saying, let neither man nor beast or a herd nor a flock taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. Let, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in, his, in their hands. Who can tell? If God will turn and repent and turn away from His fierce anger, that we not perish. You can be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I want to speak to you on the subject this morning, an astounding awakening. An astounding awakening. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray Holy Ghost power would come. God, we pray that He would quieten our hearts that He would focus our attention on Your Word. Let God be heard this morning. Oh God, we pray You would cut through the clutter of our modern lives, the distractions and the beeps and the dings and the voice messages and everything else. And oh God, please speak to our hearts this morning. Rouse us from slumber. slumber. Give us an awakening this morning. And we'll give You glory for what You do in Jesus Precious name, amen and amen. I've been doing some study lately on the subject of revival. Particularly in the years of revival in the United States called the Awakenings. The first, particularly the first and second great awakening. 
First Great Awakening happened in the colonies of the early United States between 1730s and the 1740s. The Second Great Awakening took place in 1800 and the fires of revival did not cease to somewhere around 1850. Nearly 50 years of reviving in this nation. Before these times, churches were filled with the unconverted. If there was any concern for God, uh, men simply went through the motions of religious ritual and expected, uh, and expected that to satisfy God. While there were indeed people in the churches that were genuinely converted to God in saving faith, their status was lethargic. Uh, they were lukewarm and they were unconcerned about the souls of men. But God began to move powerfully on men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, James McGreedy, Edward Payson, and Edward Griffin. And they began to share God's message with God's people who were aroused from their slumber and began to pray and to seek the face of God for the souls of the lost. That is where awakening took place. Spiritual awakening is realized when men and women who before had little care for their eternal state, no realization for their condition before God, and no desire to be rescued from the judgment that is soon to come, and they are suddenly and intensely aware of their eternal matters. It is as though they are awakened from their slumber to find their homes on fire and fleeing from those homes. That is the intensity of a great awakening. Scores of people during this time were suddenly aware of their lost condition before God and begin to uh, call on Him and, and go, the, the condition that God would call them account of their sin. And that the only remedy in that moment was to fly to the saving blood of a resurrected Lord Jesus. It was a sudden awareness that pervaded society as a whole. Everywhere you went, people were awakened to spiritual matters. People shrugged off the daily grind of life to be aroused to the eternity that they had before God. And such awarenesses were, was not attributed to the men that brought the message as capable and as knowledgeable as they were. They preached for years before only to dry churches Unmoved congregations. No, there was something going on more than just a, an exceptional theologian. What was witnessed during these awakenings was not unique and isolated to our nation. On the contrary, a similar move of God can be traced back all the way to 862 B.C where a haggard and wore out a Jewish a prophet wandered to the center of the Assyrian world and pronounced doom in 40 days. 
And what took place next is a testimony to the power and the mercy of God. What took place says volumes about the might and power of God as well as His grace and mercy. Only question is, will you be awakened? Will you be awakened to your eternal state? I remember as a young man and as a boy, not quite getting my head around what everybody was hollering about. What everybody was saying. I remember sitting under the preaching of James Langston. My dad was a tape pound. He got every tape, every tape that was available. Took it home, listened to it, played it all the time. And I remember years later, I, I remember thinking about those old days at, at, uh, at Battlefield Baptist where Brother, uh, Brother Langston preached. And I said, oh, I remember him was just doing a bunch of hooping and hollering. That's all it was. There wasn't nothing to his message. And I pulled one of his old tapes from the early 80s and put it in my tape player and played it. And from that come the clearest gospel message that I'd ever heard. A clear sounding message. But my ears were dull to it. Until I was 21 years old. An awakening came upon my life. I realized my need for God. Imagine that in not only your life and my life, but in the life of our neighbors and the life of our co-workers and all the people at the grocery store and all the people in the community. A real live awareness of a coming judgment of God. That is an awakening. And that's what took place, not only the first and second great awakening in our nation, but it took place in Nineveh. In Nineveh, God's power was exercised. I want every person in this room, lost or saved, there are to see three keys to open the door of a heaven-sent awakening found in this text. Three keys. My earnest heart's desire is for God to send an awakening. Is to God to send an awakening that my children might be awakened to the presence of God. That my, that my congregation might be awakened to a new sense of God's reality and of God's presence. For my community, for my nation now. God send an awakening. And I believe keys to that awakening are found in this text. I want to share them with you this morning. The first one I want you to see. The first key is to recognize these people in Nineveh's reception of God's message. The reception of God's message. You know the pattern of how God went about reaching an entire pagan community is pretty clear. He got a hold of God's people first. Then he shook the city in its unconverted state. I remember in the revival that I was in in the early 2000s in my home church, it, my pastor would be right clear to tell you that what took place in that building and in those years of reviving in that church, that breeze from heaven that blew in that I was a first-hand witness of started with him. God got a hold of my preacher before he got a hold of everybody else. Here, God does the same thing. He gets a hold of Jonah first and rouses Jonah and straightens him out and places within him a message to deliver to this people. 
Notice first of all, I want you to see the revelation of his voice. The revelation of his voice. Look back at verse number 4. Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the summary of the message. Uh, verse 5 uh, starts out. Look at verse 5. It says, so, so the people of Nineveh believed God. It didn't say that the, police, the people believed Jonah. It said the people believed God. So the message that was given by Jonah was received as a revelation from God. They saw Jonah not as the showcase, not as the headliner, not as the star, but simply the mailman. You know, when the mail lady comes and drops off my mail in my mailbox, I don't get all excited. Woo! Man, this lady brought me a message. She's awesome. She's great. I just say thank you and I take the message from who it come from. They're the ones that are in the spotlight. Jonah is simply the mailman. He's simply the one bringing the message. And as a matter of fact, what we are told about the message in verse number 4, God wasn't even mentioned at all. Look back at the message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. No mention of God. No mention of mercy. No mention of what of what it takes to get right. I mean, if we can surmise that Jonah basically did exactly what God told him to do, and I would almost think that when he come outside the whale's belly, he'd be apt to just do exactly what God said. And so if we can surmise his message in just this one thing, 40 days and then of us toast, and these people weren't given all that much, were they? And they weren't given all that much to, to respond to. Now we don't know if... Jonah's entire preaching was confined to this repetition, or whether it was, uh, or if he elaborated further, it's just not recorded. But even if it was the same message repeated over and over and over, these people were hearing something else. They were not hearing the voice of a prophet, they were hearing the voice of God. Listen. When I stand in this pulpit and proclaim the Word of God to you, the message of God, the only way, the only way I can do it in, is in my voice. But listen, as scratchy and as damaged as it is, it is still to be heard as the voice of God. If I'm preaching this book and I'm telling you what it says and I'm explaining the sense of it properly, it's not from me, it's from Him. It's to be received and heard as His voice, not mine own. Listen, the, but you certainly need to be concerned about God's voice. I can't save you. I can't awaken you. I would do a poor job if I could. There's a story about D.L. Moody. One day he's walking down the street and this drunk came up to him, staggering up to D.L. Moody, pulled him on his shirt and said, Hey, you saved me years ago. D.L. Moody said, That's about as good a job as I could do right there. Listen, I can't save you. But I do know that there is a God that does speak through His Word and rightly interpreted and rightly spoken and rightly given the sense of speaks to you through me. 
Listen, God can speak to you. God can soundly save you. He can shake us. He can, he can shake us to our core. But would to God that you would be awakened to hear that voice. 21 years of my life, I was deafened to that voice. Years, I believe some of you sit in this church deafened to the voice of God. But I was awakened as a 21-year-old college student. And my prayer is that everyone in this church should be awakened. Wake up to the voice of God. Notice second of all, not only the revelation of the voice of God, but the risk of the vengeance of God. I believe that verse 5 is a summary of all that they did in reaction to the voice of God. What does it say in verse number 5? So the people of Nineveh believe God. And they proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth and from the greatest of them even to the least of them. I think verse 5 is a summary of what took place in verses 6 through 8. It's a summary verse, even 9. It kind of puts those together and says what they did. You see the following verses outline it in more detail. But I want you to see that they not only believe God, but they believe this warning. They not only heard Jonah as the voice of God, but they heard the message. The message was a threat of coming judgment. No, this was a, uh, this was a final sentence of judgment. Not just the threat. This is case dismissed. Here's your sentence. It's over. That's a frightening conclusion. Their actions prove that they did not just simply laugh off what Jonah said as some kind of crackpot. They were awakened. That, uh, they, the awakening was that they did not look at Jonah as some, some sort of phony foreign troublemaker. Some kind of crackpot Israeli kind of come in to stir things up in town. They didn't get angry at Jonah and maybe raise a protest that says that all Ninevites' lives matter. It wasn't what took place. There was no protest. There was no anger. There was no laughing and all. No fear came over the whole town. I think it's interesting that the king first sensed the fear of God. You know, people in leadership ought to fear God because oftentimes those that follow follow closely and hard along. This king sensed that, that, that awakening, maybe even reality, maybe he was the first that it broke into. Word got to him and a seriousness of what taken awakening come upon him. But it seems to emanate throughout the whole people, throughout the whole land of Nineveh. You see, fear came upon all because the voice of heaven was ringing over them. On the day of Pentecost, the voice from heaven rang out over them. Uh, and when Peter uh, preached the, to those whose hands were stained with the blood of Jesus, it was the voice of God. They were pricked in their heart and they cried out, What shall we do? When Jonathan Edwards preached that message in a sinner's hand, in the hands, uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God, he had preached it before at his own church. And to no avail, 
No, no happening. No, nothing happened. He went to another church, I believe in Enfield, Connecticut, and he stood there with weakened and frail voice and read the words, the script of the message, and the place was awakened. People grabbed to the pillars of the building and begged Edwards to stop reading lest the mouth of the floor below them open up and swallow them into hell. It wasn't the preacher. It wasn't his talents or skills. It was the voice of God that brought the hearts to trembling. Would to God every young person in this room hear the voice of God and tremble in your place if you're unconverted. Fly to Jesus. Come to Him. Oh, Edwards, Edwards preached that sermon and people were broken to the core. An awakening took place. Listen, lost sinner, you may rest at ease on that pew uh, thinking that a tip of the hat will do before your God. But Romans 8, 5, and 6 says, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up wrath to the, against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to man, who will render uh, to every heart according to their deeds. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9 When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus who shall be punished with everlasting destructions from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Listen, sinner, hear the threatenings, hear the voice of God and flee the wrath to come. Flee to Jesus. Know your danger. Know the precarious place that you woke at any moment you could go out into eternity. Notice second of all, not only should we recognize the reception of God's message, but also we should remember the response to God's message. Sometimes I believe there is the thought that some that are in the elites of the world are above or immune to the religious rabble of the world. That presidents and prime ministers, professional athletes and prominent movie stars are enlightened above such enthusiasm. But when God does truly speak, when awakening does take place, it can grab the heart of anyone. There is no one that is exempt from shaking before the voice of God. The voice of God sounding. When it sounds, no one's excluded. Verse number 6 says that someone brought word to the king. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne. And he laid his robe from him. And covered him with sackcloth. And sat in ashes. Now, what I want you to see here in verse number 6 is, first of all, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. Evidently, the king realized the seriousness of the voice of God. Who can explain it? Here is a king that probably sacrificed to pagan idols every day. He led the, he led the charge for the brutality of the Assyrian people. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, when a man from nowhere brings a one-sentence message, his heart is broken. His heart is broken before his people. 
And I want you to notice what he did personally. It says that he put on sackcloth. Sackcloth is exactly what it sounds like. It's the cloth of a sack. You take a potato sack. Maybe you'd find a burlap potato sack at the grocery store. And you tie, you know, you cut a hole in the, cut a hole in the bottom of it and cut a hole in each side. And you put that on. That's sackcloth. That is the clothing of the most base and the most lowest class of poverty-stricken people. Here is the king. And he lays, as he says, he lays aside his garments of no doubt silk and, and fur and fine linens, comfortable uh, to the touch and, and wonderful looking on that king. He lays them aside and he put on the robes of a beggar. He put on the robes of a homeless. Me and Evan went out to Tractor Supply the other day and he, he had his gym pants on and the old t-shirt and he said, I look like a homeless man. I said, no, you don't look like a homeless man. I've seen a homeless man before. Filthy clothes, smell of stench, haggard and worn, stained with grease and grime. This would be what this king is doing. Putting on the clothes of a homeless person. And then he says that he sat down in those ashes. The idea is it is a statement of abject grief. I feel as low as low can get. As a matter of fact, why don't I just sit down in these ashes because and, match, and have my outside match what my inside feels. A, a, feel, a, a king that is pristine, clean, and well manicured and beautiful. He sits down in a pile of ashes and starts to begin to take those black ashes and rub them on his head. He starts taking them and pouring them on his head. What does it matter? Judgment's coming. Oh God, judgment's coming. I'm sorrow. I'm in deep sorrow. I can't go any further. The reality of what you called for. Deep sorrow welled up in this king's, in this king's uh, uh, soul. And so he sent out a proclamation for all the city to do the same. He took the lead. Everyone began to wear, wear these, these burlap sacks around. I mean, they even went so far as to put it on the animals. When you don't know what's going to please God, you might as well do it to everybody. They put sacks on all the animals. They wouldn't let the animals drink or eat. They wouldn't let the people drink or eat. They all fasted. It's a shame in our church today that fasting is only done when we're about to have surgery. When it's a medical prescription. Don't eat nothing. We'll think we're dying by the morning when we fast. These people got serious with God. God's voice rang true. Whatever it takes. Oh God, judgment's on the line. I can't continue down this road. Something's got to give. Something's got to change. Something's got to happen. The whole society as a whole humbled themselves, humiliated themselves before God, before His voice. Rarely ever do we find ourselves humiliated in a low state before God. You want to know? You want to know why me as a preacher like to tell people last week that the altars were full when there was one, two, three, four, maybe four? Because these altars, they just get, they just, they're so neglected. You want to know why? 
Don't know why. There is a certain humiliation. I admit. There's a certain humiliation. Standing up among God's people and coming down here and saying, I got problems. I got problems. And I need, I need my brothers and sisters to come help me pray for them. There's a humiliation in that. These people humiliated themselves before God. Admittedly, it's not an altar. But at the same time, you understand what is being said here. This is a haughty, prideful people that were notorious for their victories and their military conquests and their murderings all over the world. All over the known world at the time. And here they are, humiliated to the point of being puppies. Crying out and whimpering before God. There is nothing miraculous in these altars or in these benches but it does say, I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care what anybody's seen. I got to get to God now. Now. What will it take for you to be cut to the heart? What will it take for you to be awakened? Will it take your wife, your daughter, your son to be in the hospital and intensive care? For you to see the judgment of God. Does it going to take you being in intensive care? What will it take for you to hear the voice of God? How many sermons will you sit through? How many times will I plead and beg with you to wake up and come to Jesus? To throw off your agenda, your self-filled agenda. And get on God's kingdom agenda. And what He's doing in this world. What will it take? To wake us up both saved and lost. We're lethargic every Sunday and every Sunday night and Wednesday night. We sit like dead fish in a pew. God help us all. They were awakened and they humbled themselves before God. What will it take for you to listen to the message and hear the voice of God? They were cut to the heart. They were constrained at the hands. Look at verse number 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Listen to this. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way. and From the violence that is in their hand. What was it that brought Nineveh up before God? Do you remember? Go back to chapter 1, look at verse number 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, cry against it. For their wickedness has come up before me. Their wickedness is what got their attention brought before God. May I remind you that the Assyrian and people and Nineveh, who were part and parcel the same thing, were a wicked, idolatrous, violent, and brutal people. With the sounding of this message, they knew that their murderous and monstrous sin was at the heart of the issue. Every man born, every man is born with a conscience. And that accusing voice of the inner law written on our hearts. God put His law there. I don't have to teach my kids how to lie and how to steal. It's there. But at the same time, they know when it's wrong. There is a conscience awakened in our hearts and lives. They knew what was wrong. 
And they, as Romans says, they held the truth in unrighteousness. It means to hold down, to push down. They took that conscience and squashed it down. You know how somebody can live in abject, filthy, wretched sin and we throw God and say, how in the world do you live in that? They take the truth and they stamp it and they push it and they squash it and they, and they, and they say no to the Holy Ghost. They say no to conscience and it is seared as a hot iron with a hot iron and it becomes callous and hard. It's not even felt anymore. When I was a kid, we used to Dad put us up some rope swings. We had some of these big, big wooden spools, and we'd get up on top of them spools. We get that rope swing, and we'd swing out and swing back, and we'd do it for hours at a time. We'd play games and swing out and see if we could land in this old, uh, this old busted tire tube of a bicycle. We'd try to jump and land in that hole. We'd swing all day long, pretend like we was Indiana Jones and 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 Luke Skywalker, and 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 we play all day. And I come in my hands. My hands, I'd have blisters on my hands. It wasn't long after a while. I had a big thick callus all the way across my hand. And I could, I could swing all day long. It wouldn't bother me a bit. There's many people in this room that your conscience is so thick anymore. You cannot, you will not respond to what I've been saying. You, your conscience is so thick, it doesn't bother you uh, to fornicate. It doesn't bother you to look at porn on Saturday night and come in here and smile and open a Bible and pretend like you're the church on Sunday morning. It didn't bother you at all. Conscience is seared as a hot iron, but God pierced through that conscience of these people in this Bible, in this, in this scene. Listen, uh, uh, they, were, they were wrong and they knew it. And now if something doesn't change, they were going to face the consequences of their sin. So what did they do? Well, he said to leave off their sin. They left off their sin. They turned away from it. They, they did a word that is seldom heard in religious circles today. They repented, changed their mind, and they made an about face, did a U-turn on the highway of life. They turned around. They forsook their sins and turned away from them. They turned uh, to God. They made, a, they made a change. They made a turn. Are you turning life? You cannot be right with God and continue in the same manner of sin. Many today in this church here are here for the entertainment value or for the religious feather that can be put in their cap. Uh, they, can, uh, they come to uh, hear, hear Brother Ronnie snort and say something goofy and get a good chuckle out of his ignorance. They, they come to hear an old sentimental song and get a little tear. My mama used to sing that song. But when it comes to hearing the voice of God, that is as far as they go. When it comes to dealing directly with our sin and our rebellion and our ungodliness, that's as far as it goes. I'll go to appease my wife. I'll go to appease my husband. But beyond that, I'm not doing anything. I might shed a little tear. I might be get a little sentimentality. You know, I used to try to comfort myself years ago when I was, I was singing in the choir at Temple, Lost as a Ball in High Ways. I was up there singing, and they sung the song till the storm passes by. I'll never forget it. I was in that choir. I started crying, weeping my eyes out, tears rolling down my face because when I was little, that was the song my dad used to sing with me and my mom and my sister in the church together. We'd stand behind the pulpit. I'd stand on a chair, and dad would strum his guitar, and I'd sing till the storm passes by. I started thinking about that. <laughs> started crying 
tears. Everybody thought, well, well, God's got a hold of Ronnie. Praise God. He's got a hold of Ronnie. No, it wasn't. I was just sentimental. I tried to comfort myself later in college. Well, I know I'm saved. You remember that time I cried? I cried. I cried about that whole thing. I, I cried in the choir. I remember one night we was coming down coming down the road from a basketball game at Brevard and we was all in the bus and it was my first year and we was about midway through the season. It was getting close to Christmas. I was getting so homesick I couldn't stand it. And I started thinking, guess what about that same song till the storm passes by? <laughs> I was in the back of that bus crying. See, I'm saved. I'm saved. I cry at that song they sang in church. Listen, that does not mean you're saved. That means you're emotional. That means you have a little bit of sentimentality. You probably got a box. You probably got a box in your closet full of uh, bottle caps and tickets to movies and, and pictures and letters and cards. You're sentimental. That's it. I don't mean you're saved. I don't mean you're regenerated. These people repented. They turned with, and from their sin. They turned away from their bent of sin. Turned to God. As some of you come in here and shed a tear about a sentimental song, then go home and cuss and drink and look at porn and fornicate and lie and steal and commit adultery and gossip and cause division. Don't tell me you're hearing the voice of God and it doesn't change your ways. The prophet, I think it was Haggai said, mend your ways. Habakkuk, mend your ways. Doesn't change you. You ain't heard the voice of God. Listen, when you hear the voice of God, when you, when you react to its callings, you will repent. You will, not, you, will, you will repent of your acts of rebellion. You'll turn away from them. It will cause you to cry out, Woe is me, for I am undone. It will cry, have you cry out like Job, Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Oh, respond to the voice of God. Don't let it go one in one ear, not the other. Don't let it take this hour and say, If I just make it through this, I'll be alright till another week. Or two weeks. Or three weeks. Listen to the voice of God. Finally, not only recognize their reception of God's message, remember their response to God's message cut to the heart, constrained in the hands, but also reflect on their reasoning from the message. The king's decree ends with his reasoning. Go back to verse number 9. Who can tell? Seems to be a big question mark there, isn't it? He just doesn't know. He's shooting in the dark. He's guessing. Who can tell? That lends, that lends the credence to the message being 40 days and Nineveh is overturned. He has no idea, no explanation, no nothing. Who can tell? If God will turn and repent, God will turn and repent and turn away from His fierce anger that we perish not. That's His reasoning. It is especially interesting in light of the fact that as far as we know, that they knew next to nothing about God. That God that held them in contempt, who was coming to overthrow their city, despite the judge, despite, uh, despite an attempt to, def this was an attempt to defer the judgment of God. It was as, at best a guess. If He doesn't like what we're doing, if what we're doing is wrong, if the way we've been living is wrong, Let's change the way we're living. Maybe it will appease this God. Notice, first of all, I want you to see their surrender to God. Notice the last phrase in verse number 9. That we perish not. The king got the message. 
He knew exactly what Jonah was saying, that the city be overturned. Destruction was about to fall on it. Remember I told you that earlier in the book of Jonah, the language that was used against Nineveh, about Nineveh, was similar language to what had happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire from heaven. Come down on those places. Burn them up. He had no other doubt than to say that this, would, this was going to happen. This was, his, uh, this was a sobering realization of what was about to take place. And instead of partying like it was 1999, instead of just say, well, the end is coming, let's live it up. What did he do? They completely surrendered to God. They basically did this. They threw themselves on the mercy of the court. You know what I'm talking about? They threw themselves at God. Judge, have mercy on me. No defense. No pleading. Uh, no argument. They just, they just crumbled before the judge. They surrendered completely in the hopes, maybe, that it might cause God to turn away in His anger. No, I want you to know that they were in the complete dark. They were ignorant of God's revelation as far as we could tell. Yet they knew that their fate lay strictly in God's hands. You know, there's something about that moment of realization, that awakening that comes before conversion, where you sense the reality that your life is not in your hands. That it's completely in His. That He determines what happens to you. That's what this the man recognized. That his life was in God's hands. That there was, there was no rebuttal, no defense. This was a blatant attempt to find insight, God, uh, to find uh, in God to be, to, to try to incite God to be merciful. They fasted, they prayed, they humbled themselves to dust, to the ground, to get God to overturn the death sentence that he had just announced. Today, many people will come and they'll try to bargain with God. Have you ever heard them? Here's what they'll say. And, I, and I, I, I can't speak to another man's salvation, nothing, but I've heard it time and time again. They'll stand up in a, uh, in a meeting and they'll say, I just want to thank the Lord for saving me. I wasn't all that bad of a person. But when I was a teenager, I prayed that prayer and God saved me. I have every reason to question that. Because you've not seen yourself who you are before God. These people saw themselves in abject ruin before God. They saw themselves as the, as the head-on collision of God's wrath coming their way. Listen, what one, one preacher friend of mine said, rather than begging God to show them mercy, many want to show God their merits. They want to come to, can we talk about this? Can we get an agreement? Can we come down here and strike a contract and, and say, you know, I still, I still want to be a good old boy redneck and chase women and, and spit tobacco, but I'll go to church on Sunday and I'll put on a nice shirt if, if I'd be all right with you, God, we'll just call it good. And you leave me alone, I leave you alone, and we'll be all right. I'm sorry, that's not how it works. It is, a, it is unconditional surrender. God comes in with the sword of His judgment, with the sword of His might, and He leans it over you and wants you to repent. 
demands that you repent. Remember, He is merciful, long-suffering. He will not force Himself on you, but He does brandish His sword. Ezekiel, Ezekiel, a sword, a sword. Look it up. A sword, a sword. His judgment's coming. They were to surrender to God under no uncertain terms. If you want to make a deal with God, that will never stand in the way of God's wrath. It'd be like trying to hold a tsunami off with an umbrella. Your bargainings with God every Sunday, well, I'm just a kid. Well, I'm just a teenager. i got plenty of time. Well, I'm just this. Well, well, I'm all right. I've been church all my life. I, I did this. I do that. I did this right here. I'm telling you, your righteousness is like an umbrella. Just trying to fend off a tsunami. In the day of judgment, there will be no hope unless you come down and you crumple in that pew and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Oh, God, stand by. Stand off your judgment. God, save my wretched soul. You'll not, you'll not last the judgment of God. Your only hope is complete mercy. Your only hope is to say with the songwriter, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. They're surrendered to God, but I want you to see their suspicion about God. Again, he said in verse number 9, who can tell? We don't have any other hope. Who can tell? If we keep going the way we're going, we're sure to meet the judgment of God. It's coming. They heard God's voice. It's coming. So if they keep going that way, they're sure to have it. So the only other option is that way. It's to turn around. That's their suspicion. You see, they have a suspicion about God's expression of judgment. They had no idea that God delights in mercy. They didn't have an Old Testament. They didn't know the, they didn't, they didn't know the parallel of, of Israel and how God redeemed them by the Lamb. They didn't know that God delights in mercy. And He not only had a Ten Commandments, but He had, a, he had an Ark and a Covenant. He had a place where blood could be applied and sins be rolled over. He didn't know, they didn't know God had a whole economy about getting right with Him and being right with God. They had no idea. They just had a guess. A sneaky suspicion. They... They suspicion that said since God had been merciful for so long, so long in their lives, if God had been merciful for so long, they'd been doing what they're doing and living like they've lived for a long time, a long generations. They've been doing this way for a long time. And there's the slightest hope that if He'd been merciful all that time, that He just might be merciful. In the future, if we change our ways, he might turn away from his wrath. He might change his sentence. If he'd been so good in the past and merciful in the past, that he might be merciful in the future just a little bit longer. Their backs were against the proverbial wall, they were grasping at straws. Maybe, just maybe, if they turned from their evil way and they believed God, that would save them. They mustered hope when they really had no hope at all. Just a suspicion, a guess, blinded, dark. I want you to look at something with me. Take your Bible and go to Luke chapter number 11. Luke chapter number 11. Jesus is 
preaching to a nearby city there in Jerusalem. I don't, can't recall a lot of the context, but I want you to notice one verse. Because Nineveh comes to the forefront. Luke 11 and verse number 32. Luke 11, 32. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. They, uh, their, their testimony, you know, so what Jesus is saying is that Jonah came in and said, your condemned judgment's over, and the whole city responded. Sackcloth and ashes. And had no hope that God would change his mind. They have the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, standing right before them. They soon would have the cross, an empty tomb, the ascension of Jesus, the miracles of the apostles, the church of the living God as testimony before them. And yet they would not repent. They had a Jesus telling them that God would forgive their sins if they would repent and believe on Jesus. And they would say no. You're right. Nineveh has every right to stand in condemnation. They have every right to stand up and point a finger at these people. And say something like this. All we heard from Jonah is that we were all going to die. And yet we repented and begged God for mercy. God sent your generation somebody greater than Jonah. A greater uh, a generation has Jesus. And Jonah said, all oh, you're going to die. But Jesus said, I'll die for you. And yet you've not repented and you've not believed. How dare you? If, if the people of Nineveh were here this day, they'd point a bony finger at many of you in this congregation. How dare you say no to Jesus week after week after week after week? When you have a bloody cross, you have an empty tomb, you have the message of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ sounded day after day after day after day. How dare you? How dare you say no? How dare you do this? And yet we still refuse to humble ourselves before God. We still refuse to surrender our lives to whatever He wants us to do. We still will not trash our self-fulfilling agenda and get God's kingdom agenda on our life. Listen, believe the words of God. Do like Nineveh and believe. Believe. Listen, this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not. So many Sundays I feel as though there's a slight glimmer of light making it through into your consciences, into your minds. And as soon as you walk out them doors, blinded by the God of this world. Blinded once again. Hear the message. Hear the voice of God. Judgment is coming. Wrath is stored up upon wrath for those that trust not Christ. In 1982, ABC Evening News reported an unusual art display. It was a chair affixed to a shotgun. 
It was to be viewed by sitting in the chair and looking directly into the barrel. The gun was loaded. It was cocked. And a timer was set on the trigger that sometime in the next 100 years, that gun would go off. And so, when people would see the exhibit, they would sit in the chair right in the the shell's path. All they knew that the gun could go off at point blank range at any moment. They were gambling that in that moment it would not happen. There are so many who would not dare sit in that seat and who gamble so much more every Lord's Day. Every moment of their lives. Because they they will not hear the word of God. Believe him. And turn to him. Would you not turn to him today? You may say, what would people think? I've been a member of this church for a long time. I I do a lot of things in this church. I'm I'm very active. I'm I'm, I'm this. I'm that person. I, 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 I I can't come down there and... And admit that I don't know the Lord, that I, that I am this very people that refuse and rebel against God. And I've heard the word of God and yet I still say no. I cling to my selfish life. I cling to my life and, and stomp my feet. And as a little child say, I, I'll do what I want to do. Nobody's going to tell me I live my life. I'm telling you. In order to frighten you because every day you're, you're gambling with eternity. And eternity is never ending. It never goes away. I'm, I, I, I'm still horrified by the text in Revelation that we went over where it said the people in hell had no rest day or night. They had no peace. There was no time out. There was no let me get my breath. There was no moment in which they could take a step back just for a moment. It was constant writhing agony from the presence of the Lord. Don't say no to God. Hear his voice. Respond accordingly. Don't let this choir be filled with the people of Nineveh pointing a finger saying, how dare you? How dare you? God is speaking. And you're so dense and deaf and blinded to it. You cannot see God. You cannot hear God. How dare you say no? You come. Let's all stand to our feet. We come to a song of invitation. Every head bowed and every eye closed. No one looking in this building. If you're here today and you're lost, you say, that's me. I'm playing a game. I'm playing church a long time. Listen, listen, come to Jesus. Find a place in this altar. Seek the face of God. Turn from your wicked ways. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Believe on Him. Trust Him today. When are you going to stop running? When are you going to stop spinning that chamber and putting that gun of eternity to your head and pulling the trigger? How long are you going to play that game? It's going to catch up with you. It's going to find you. It's going to find you in judgment. Do like they did. Hear the voice of God and respond. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. God, I pray you'd speak to hearts. Be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. I'm trusting to the unseen hand. We hope and pray that today's episode of the Unseen Hand podcast has been a help and blessing to you. 
For more information such as other podcasts, ministry helps, blog posts, previous sermons, or how to contact Brother Brown directly, just go to RonnieBrown.net. Join us next time for another message from Brother Ronnie on the Unseen Hand podcast. Until then, may God's unseen hand gently guide you on your journey home. The Unseen Hand.